Happy and blessed Sabbath. We're delighted that you have decided to tune in once again. We were off on a brief hiatus, but we were blessed. We were blessed because it was our prayer conference weekend here at Loma Linda University Church, and it was some enthralling conversation on the power of prayer, particularly the power of prayer vis-a-vis our brokenness and our brokenheartedness. But now we're back. We're back to Revelation. We're doing so in the midst of a really important weekend, especially if you are part of this community, because all over the U.S. we are celebrating our nurses. And here at Loma Linda, it's not just our nurses, but our healthcare workers at large. They got a lot of praise during the pandemic, but we are trying to remember that we depend on those healthcare workers every single day of our lives. And so if you're a healthcare worker, whether that's in a hospital setting, an acute patient setting, a rehab setting, thank you, thank you, thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus. I've got my co-host, Joey O, who preached an excellent sermon last week. Um, And I learned uh, a lot of things, among which uh, there's this temptation to have my missteps recorded somewhere by someone, Uh, but uh, we are going to enter into some conversation today on the beauty that is celebrating God as our creator. Before we do that, can I invite you to briefly pause, pray. God, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you because you are the creator and the sustainer of life. And we pray that in the same way that you continue to make sure that our world functions in the way that it is intended to, that our conversation function in the way it is intended to, and that is to give you all honor, glory, and praise. Stay with us as we open scripture, we praise in your name. Amen. Joey, how are you today? I'm doing well. It is a full weekend, lots of celebration. We're celebration, celebrating healthcare workers, like you said. We're also celebrating mothers. So Mother's Day week. Yeah, that's how we're... we forget. <laughs> so mothers who are so important to our lives. Um, everybody has a mother, right? Everybody has a mother. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has a mother. And so if you are a mother, we just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. And even if you don't have children, if you are a spiritual mother, or if you uh, are an emotional mother, if you provide support and guidance, thank you, thank you for all you do on this blessed weekend. Thanks for reminding that. Otherwise, I was going to get in hot water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and last weekend was a busy or, or an important week weekend for you as well. It was. Yeah. It was. it was. I saw some of you tuning in, and we've gotten so many people that have just reached out and um, said congratulations. Uh, please uh, refrain from the temptation of calling me doctor. Um, I'm just happy to be done. Um, so... 
you're in that process, so I, I pray for you, and I wish you well as you start uh, your writing process. I hear that it is going swimmingly and that your proposal has been approved, which is a really exciting time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's I don't know, swimmingly is good. It's uh, <laughs> stop, starts and stops, but <laughs> it's going. <laughs> as long as it keeps going. If it keeps going, you're, you're okay, I think. And knowing you and just how dedicated you are and uh, how efficient you are and how thoughtful you are, I'm sure it's going to it's gonna go well. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it it's kind of goes with this whole idea of revelation as a birthing, as a, the, 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 the demon process, the doctoral process has been an eye-opening mm -hmm. process. And that really is at the, at the theme, at the heart of the book of Revelation, this idea that we get an and a deeper understanding of what God is is doing. We were talking a little bit about facts before um, before we started the recording, and it seems like the facts are the same that is revealed in the Book of Revelation. But what God reveals is His interpretation of what the facts are and what the implications they are for our lives, and it opens us up to new horizons. So we see things through the way that God sees them. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, a really good analogy that you are constructing this idea that as you begin to gain some more knowledge and the beauty of a formal education process is that for us, for those of us who are not as organized to just go in, to the library and pick up a book, it does provide some structure right for us. And as you get deeper and deeper into this process, you begin to have new vistas or new horizons, as you said, open up. And I think this is the beauty of Revelation, that the church is now having to grapple with this idea of the Jesus event and how that event in history is so foundational that it has new vistas open up and how then uh, the question, as is with, I think, a formal educational process, the question is, what do you do with this information once you have a new view of the world? Joey, there's a really famous story. It's about 2,000 years old, and it really plays in nicely with this idea that, that you're sharing. Uh, it's a story that appears in Plato's seventh book uh, of his work, The Republic. Um, and it's, it's, this, it's this conversation that his uh, teacher, uh, Socrates, is having. And in the story that Plato tells, um, he asks us to envision men dwelling in a cave, and they're chained to this cave. And behind them, there's uh, embers of fire glowing. And the embers cast a shadow on the wall of the cave. And so the men became really adept at deciphering shadows mm -hmm. and being able to construct the reality based on shadows and the dim embers uh, that are glowing in the dark. They also become really proficient at hearing and interpreting sounds that are around them. But then one day, one of these men is brave enough and is able to escape. And as he does so, he emerges out from under the cave and he sees the light of the sun. And his eyes hurt, and they, it takes some time for his eyes to adjust to the light, but when they do, he is able to distill what is real from this fake and uh, carbon copy of what reality is that he experienced in the cave. 
And so he he is ex- so excited about this process, this process of revelation. Mm. So excited that he needs to share with someone because after all, transformational events demand that we sh- demand to be acted in community, right? That's the purpose of graduations. You're, a- you're able to share your wisdom or your knowledge in the context of the of a community. So the man goes back into the cave and on his descent, he's expecting that his eyes are going to take some time to adjust. He begins to tell his friends and his former uh, prisoners about what he has seen. But the problem is he his eyes have become so accustomed to the light that they're completely useless in the darkness of the cave. When the friends hear uh, this new reality, these new horizons that are being opened, they get angry, and it's an anger driven by fear. And uh, they feel that this man has become mad because of his escape, that the light has blinded him, and that now his eyes are useless. And so they decide and they conspire to kill him. And at that point, there there are two shifts, right? There's a decision from from these former friends to be prisoners forever, and there's a separation of this man where his community is no longer his community. I think that's a really apt analogy for what is happening in Revelation as John talks about light and darkness throughout the Johannine writings, that the question of the Jesus event is this question by which grace has aided us to emerge from this cave. And now we are faced with reality as God intended it to be. And the question is, do we have the courage to descend into the depths of the cave, even if it costs our life? And so that's, I think, the question uh, that any student of Revelation who is serious about delving into what God has to show us has to ask. Yeah, I love that analogy. And written by somebody or um, created by somebody who is not a Christian, right? But really does capture this idea of how how a revelation can be life transformational, mm-hmm. especially if it's not just head knowledge, but an experiential um, knowledge that happens. And I love how he sets it up that when they come it back in, the things the things that they used to be very good at seeing, they can't see very well anymore because they have seen what is real. And you you see that over and over again. And John seems to be seems to use that analogy not only in the Book of Revelation but in his in his Gospel as mm-hmm. well, like um, the 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 the, uh, the story of the blind man, mm. right? Which is John loves using irony, but mm-hmm. in the story of the blind man in John nine, the blind man ends up being the only person who sees clearly, right? Every other group, the disciples don't see the blind man for who he is. They're they're blinded by their assumptions about how the world works. Uh, the neighbors don't see the blind man for who he is. Like he can't be the blind man. He sees. How could he possibly have been the blind man that we knew? The the Pharisees don't see the blind man. They don't see the miracle. All they care about is that Jesus is threatening their whole status quo. The the parents, you would think the parents would be overjoyed that the blind man can now see. And all their care, they all the only thing that they they care about is that they don't have to take responsibility for whatever the blind man does. And so it ends up being that only the blind man is able to see Jesus clearly, whereas everybody else is blinded by their whole, everything that else that is going on inside of them. 
And John loves, he seems to love to, to use that, not use physical sight as a metaphor for spiritual blindness that we all carry inside of us. Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. I love the story because not only John's beautiful use of irony throughout the story, like, like you've mentioned, but it's also because John is intended to convey some deep theological truths. And in that story, he has Jesus acting as a ancient healer rather than the Messiah, right? Uh, back in you know, there's there's this there's this touching and this this very corporal event to to the healing, and then there's a process, right? Uh, what do you see? Well, I I see shadows. I see I, I I don't I'm not blind anymore, but I but I can't clearly see, and so in that I think hidden in that in that story and the way it's developed is this notion that revelation to truly see who Jesus is is a process it's not it's not a destination it's a journey the disciples as you've mentioned have just made this proclamation about who Jesus is and so you would think you would think they see him because they've understood it's in the book of John, that's one of the the high marks for the for the apostles as a, for the disciples as a group. We know who you are, and yet in the very next uh, section, as you're mentioning, they have no idea. They can't clearly see what the implications of that faith statement that they're making are. And so I think, lest we be too harsh on ourselves sometimes with when we think, hey, I've had a really high spiritual experience or a really high moment, or I've seen the light for what it truly is, um, lest, be, lest we be harsh on ourselves, let's remember that it is a process, it's not a destination. Yeah, it's a process, not a destination, that then we need to be okay with not being able to see perfectly clearly initially. Mm -hmm. There's a growth involved in that journey. Yeah. Or seeing clearly and then having these things that we saw clearly become blurry again, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which which I know happens often to us. It happens. It happens to John time and time again throughout the book of Revelation. There's there's these paradox moments where um, life seems to be affirmed and victory is won and John feels the glory and the majesty of the kingdom and the throne room. And in the same scene, you have despair and desolation. Uh, because the, re the truth of the matter is, Joey, reality is what happens in these paradoxical spaces, right? Reality, life is what happens in the space that exists between this, the light moments where we feel affirmed and then those dark moments when we feel despair. Yeah. And we've talked about how before the deepest truths seem to carry internal paradoxes, right? That God is both um, the son of God and son of man, that is human and divine, fully human and divine. The idea of the, in, in, in the lesson, it talked about the transcendence of God and the imminence of God, that God is all powerful and he's above us all. And yet he is intimately involved and cares about our lives. Like both of those things are true, even though they seem to be opposites. Yeah. Yeah, I so I love the fact that the lesson focuses not only on that duality that God possesses, but it also attempts to 
frame that duality in this idea or this notion of God the Creator. We can say many things about God, but perhaps there are two prominent characteristics that need to be highlighted any time we talk about God. And I love your use of the word paradox because those two char characteristics, I think, are the paradox, the greatest paradox of them all, which is God is the incarnational creator, the creator that becomes incarnate. And so John seems to center his message of Jesus on this idea of asking the question, what does it mean for us to confess that Jesus is God? Um, and, and, and if so, what does it mean then to say that Jesus is the creator? What, what does that force humanity to do in their faith confessions about who Jesus is? So the fact that Jesus, Jesus was the incarnate God, and yet he's also the creator of the universe, that he was human and divine. Mm -hmm. And as his divine, he created the universe. And yet as, as a human and divine, he he redeemed the world. Yeah. From. And he's part of the mess of the world. Mm. And so the question is, once you encounter, to go back to our analogy, right, to go back to the story of the cave. Yeah. Once you encounter that reality, mm. once you inhabit that paradox, what is our response? And John, John begins to craft, I think, uh, a beautiful and wonderful response. Uh, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza, who's a uh, revelation scholar that... Uh, that I really, really have have learned to appreciate, makes the point that revelation is a prophecy. It is apocalyptic literature. It is an epistle. But far and above anything else, she makes the case that it's liturgical, mm. that it is asking a question about what do we do in response to the Jesus event. And like any good liturgy, Fiorenza thinks that the first response and probably the most basic response that human beings ought to have to the Jesus event is doxology. Hmm. So you use two big words there, the liturgy and a doxology. What do you mean that that revelation at its core is liturgical? So the the term liturgical, right, that we that we use and our, our friends in, in other faith traditions, I think, are much more well attuned to the word liturgy. Mm -hmm. Um, than, than us Adventists. But yeah. liturgy, in essence, uh, in other faith traditions, has to do with the construction of the worship service. Mm -hmm. uh, the word itself, though, I love the meaning, the original meaning of the word, because it uh, talks about the work of the people. The work of the people. Now, the Westminster Catechism, which is something that most Protestants ascribe to, asks the question, what is the basic reason, the basic task of human beings? And the answer is to worship God and give him glory. So very early on, us Protestants understood that the primary response that we give to God, the work of the people, as it were, is to give God honor yeah. and glory. And doxology is exactly that. I, I remember, I don't know if you all are, are old enough to remember, but you remember the in, in our more traditional churches, the way that the bulletin or the, litur the liturgy uh, was crafted is you had the prelude 
and then you had the doxology. Mm. And if you remember all this way back, the doxology, the notes of praise God from whom all blessings flow with sound over the piano or the organ, and then uh, the participants in the worship service would process, they would kneel, they would pray, and then uh, we would join in, in song together. Mm. That's doxology. It's the act of giving God honor and worship. Mm. And so the work of the people, at least, uh, at least as John is beginning to state, in response to the Jesus event, is very simple. It's giving God glory and honor. Yeah. Where is where that word doxology comes from is right. giving glory to God, right. ascribing glory to God. Yeah. That is our our calling. You know, when you describe that, that brought up all sorts of memories. I had even forgotten that we used to do it like that. But it's it's true across so many different cultures and 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 ethnic groups. That pattern still held this idea of that song but you know we i always learned the doxology in korean mm. and so i remember singing that in korean it's one of the few songs that i can sing from heart because it was repeated over and over and over again and although we don't do that exactly the same way and there was some power in that repetition you know repetition can get mundane if you let it but there is also power in the reputation repetition in that it is it is formational. I love how philosopher James K. Smith talks about how habits are formational, that um, that we craft what we love by the habits that we engage in, and that that is that is the pattern or the liturgy of worship. The idea was that that worship was not only something that we ascribe to God, but it was also meant to be formational to us. How we worship, um, and he talks about in his book, uh, "You Are What You Love." He's, he says that we have liturgies everywhere. It's not just in, 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 in a worship service at church that you have liturgies. There's liturgies at sports stadiums, right? Um, seventh inning stretch that we do in baseball games. That's a liturgy. Every, every baseball game, everybody does that seventh inning stretch, right? So there are these patterns. And what do those things teach us? How do those things form us? He talks about the liturgy of shopping malls, although... Um, arguably, shopping malls are starting to die off in America. That's it's an interesting phenomenon. But this idea of the patterns that we get, like, do we go to shopping malls or every Sunday, and or 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 if you worship on Sunday, then they would have gone on Saturday, as he talks about. But do you go to the shopping malls every Sunday? Do you worship at the idol or the 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 cathedral of of um, of Nordstrom's? Right. This idea that these patterns that we engage in show what we love mm -hmm. and they actually form our loves too as we engage in them. And that's, I think, what's powerful about, about John's idea of revelation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what's powerful um, about these, these patterns as, as you're talking about when it, when it comes to churches and liturgy. Um, to to be part of a long tradition that states that any confession we make about Christ needs to commence and conclude with doxology. Mm. Because at bare minimum, what we can do is we can say, praise God from, from whom all blessings flow. Mm. Um, or, adios el Padre Celestial, or uh, the Korean version <laughs> of, of that. Uh, that's, I think, the base minimum. And I think, yes, it's repetitious. And yes, you don't quite understand why you're doing it, maybe at times. 
but it does ingrain in you this idea that what follows, whatever confession we're going to make through the spoken word, through worship, through our prayer, is in essence an act of responsive praise to the creator. Wow. Wow. And because we're created to worship, um, eventually we will all worship something. And the hope is that, like you said, that we'll engage in these um, doxologies that glorify God. And, you know, in our staff meetings, we've been, we've been reading about, um, about peacemaking. But he, he, he says an interesting thing in the chapter that we read this week. Uh, he, he quotes James chapter four, verse one, that our conflicts come from our desires or our unmet desires, right? And that, that it's because we want these things more than we want to glorify God. So some of these desires, he makes the points, they, are, they can be good desires, like the desire to have good, obedient children is a healthy desire. But if we want that more than we want to glorify God, sometimes we will react to our children's disobedience in a way that doesn't glorify God. Because what we want in that moment is that peace and quiet more than we want to glorify God. And so even, even good loves can become idols where, when they're not well-ordered in our hearts which is that the order of a heart should be at its core that we're worshiping God and trying to give him glory. And so then I, I think it does do something uh, for Adventism, a religion and a faith tradition, a community steeped in this idea of what are these angels proclaiming? Mm. I think it's important that, that we recognize just at the outset that the first angel's message commences with this command to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And that Adventists, we, we are a really, really interesting bunch. Because I think we are, whether whatever part of the spectrum uh, you, you are in, um, we are very self-aware and very well informed about Adventism. So Adventism is kind of this really interesting phenomenon because it is a set of belief systems, but it is also cultural, mm -hmm. much more much more so than any other denomination. So I can do by one of my old um, college friends who's now a Presbyterian, uh, rec a rector at a Presbyterian church. And we were just talking about what he misses in, uh, in, a, in a church that is much more litur liturgically oriented. What do you miss about Adventism? And he, he talked about this cultural component mm. to Adventism where uh, the most liberal uh, Adventists will say, well, you know, I'm, I, I don't believe in a lot of this stuff, but I'm still Adventist. Um, and that there, there, is definitely, there is definitely this identity piece to it. But I think that, that, that while, while it does provide us a support system in a community that is encouraging and that that I love to be part of um, it it does it does force us uh, to be a little self-centered in how we interpret scripture well the three angels message isn't for the Adventist church the three angels the invitation of the three angels message is worship God and give them glory period and so whatever liturgical and we're going to use that word 
purposefully. Whatever your community of faith is doing as the work of the people that brings honor and glory to God hmm. rather than to all these other idols that we are prone to create. That, the seventh, the message of the, uh, the three angels is for you. Hmm. And so I think Adventism needs to become much more broader in the way we see and we interpret these things. Um, and that's difficult to do because, as we said, is we are so uh, theologically and culturally enmeshed sometimes. That's true. I mean, the way that I've always read this, that passage, um, the way that I was taught from when my youth to read that passage was that worship the Creator. Well, the Creator is God. There's an allusion to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, to the fourth commandment. So worshiping the Creator um, vis-a-vis means that we keep the Sabbath right. day holy. Right, and I I do believe there are connections there. There the the wording that he uses the springs of water and all of that. There there is an allusion to the fourth commandment and to the create. But the fourth commandment is in itself alluding to the creation event. Right, that God created the the heavens and the earth. So it is it is definitely pointing to the Creator God. We see that throughout uh, the Book of Revelation, the importance of God being Creator. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about, if we have time, we can talk a little bit about that later. But, but I've always narrowed the scope to, well, proper worship of God in, in Revelation chapter, um, 14, verse seven is, is keeping the Sabbath day holy. And although there may be an element of that, I love how you're saying that when we just narrow it to only that, we miss that worshiping God is broader than just that. That worshiping God um, includes the ways that we live our lives, the ways that we give honor to and glory to God in everything that we do. Like in the book that we're reading about peacemaking, um, he, his, whole, his whole focus is that conflict is an opportunity to glorify God, which was mind-blowing to me because I, I always thought conflict is like dishonoring of God. But he said, no, conflict is an opportunity for us to um, to glorify God in the ways that we navigate conflict. And that's so powerful to think that in everything that I do, I can glorify God. That's that's extremely powerful. And it's it's even more powerful when you when you realize that you're moving it from uh what we do, i.e., we go to church, to who we are, mm-hmm. i.e., we are creatures. And so I think that the first angel's message is less theological, although it is theological in the sense that it says something about God, and more existential in the sense that it says something about ourselves. I think it says more about us than it does about God. And I'll tell you why, Joey. Well. As you were mentioning, human beings are created to worship. And the, t- the prime temptation throughout Scripture is this desire to worship something else. And Paul talks about this in the New Testament. Uh, Moses will talk about this in his travails through the desert. And that is the desi- this uncommon and irrational desire that human beings have to worship creation instead of the Creator. Mm. And so I think the invitation to worship God and give him glory is simply to recognize that you're a creature and you are dependent on a creator. And for all of the 
uh, the, the things that we've said with our traditional readings of Revelation about the Catholic Church, for example, uh, their theologian, uh, preferred theologian, Thomas Aquinas, I think puts it really clear. Mm. Aquinas says that God creates in order, that God is a God of order, mm. and that God creates orderly systems, mm. where God is outside of the system and then comes, you know, for Aquinas, it was the angels, and then, um, then after the angels, the humans, and then after the humans, you had um, beasts and so on and so forth. And he says that sin is what occurs when a creature wants to climb one one level up or one level or or when the when the creature wants to go one level down. Hmm. Um, for Aquinas, then, sin is actually the inability that human beings have to recognize their role in the created order. And wow, I mean, if Adventists had had read Aquinas back in back in the 1800s when it was taboo to do so, they might have come up with a three angels message that would have been more ecumenical in the sense that it was inviting to recognize how God, the creator, was moving through different created systems, i.e. through different churches, different people, uh, different communities and families of faith. Wow. That's so powerful because you, you do see that from the very beginning, right? When sin happens, it's because humans want to be God, mm -hmm. right? They want to be God. They want to, they've been given dominion over the earth, right? And yet they want more. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that desire to be God that causes the brokenness mm -hmm. in relationship with God, the brokenness in relationship with, with um, um, nature, brokenness in relationship with each other and internal brokenness as well. Mm -hmm. this, this idea to be outside of the order that God has created. Yeah, That's so powerful. And and on the other side, although again, I'm not a Thomist, I don't agree with everything Aquinas wrote. Uh, but on the other uh, spectrum, he he says, well, think about vice and think about our most basest desires. Mm -hmm. That capacity or or th that proclivity we have to that to the to those types of sins is because we abandoned our power of reason and we give ourselves in, as Scripture says, to base desires. And so it's. I think the beauty of Revelation is it calls us to live in a space of harmony. Mm. And it's a, it's a, it's an invitation to live in a harmonious space because the creator created a harmonious uh, universe for us for us to inhabit. That is what it means to recognize that God has created. Wow. Yeah, so when it when he's emphasizing the fact that he is the creator God, he's He's emphasizing the importance of understanding the proper place and our proper place in that community mm -hmm. order. And then he's asking us also, right, to consider then not only what our response to God is, which we've spent uh, some time talking about, but he's also asking us to consider what is our response in relationship to the created order, as it were. Uh, worship God. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 says, because he created all things. Mm -hmm. And that that all things in Greek means all things. Mm -hmm. And so it is this idea of not only are you called to live in a, in a relationship of harmony with God and how do you establish harmony with God we worship, but it's also you were created to live in a state of harmony with God with with the creation, with the world around you, and how do you live that 
Well, you live it in a sense or in a state of mutuality. There is interdependence in creation. And when you, when you start to fray those connections, uh, you create this harmony. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's so powerful. And, and it's not just humans who rebelled against this created order, right? The, the story of Revelation is that there are these false gods. There are these, the, the, John sets up the, the reason why he's emphasizing that God is the creator God is because there, we, we've heard about these beasts in, in Revelation 12, the, be, the image, the beast and the image of the beast that are trying to usurp the position of God and making claims to that, even though they are not the creator. They are actually the destroyer of creation. And that's the, that's the juxtaposition that you see is these, these powers that try to claim to be the creator God are actually the ones that are destroying creation. And we as humans, we get to choose because God has invited humanity into the work of creation, right? To further the work of creation. Um, the first command that he gives to Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply, right? So this idea that we are to continue the work of developing creation and yet what Adam and Eve end up doing at in the Garden of Eden is to destroy that created order by trying to usurp the position of God. And that is what Satan and his forces are doing in Revelation. Absolutely. And that is what I think sticks out to me as one of my favorite ways of reading Revelation. And I think it had to do with just me really digging into the text over the past couple of weeks and realizing that there's an interesting pattern that has emerged that I'm, I'm sure some some of you viewers can probably walk write a doctoral dissertation on because I, I haven't re I haven't read it in any other commentary, and that is that John always uh, creates kind of this formula where you have a theological pronouncement. Uh, followed by an existential affirmation. And what I mean by that is throughout the book, you have kind of these, these ideas about who God is. And what you're mentioning is, uh, I think, a prime example of that. How do we know that God is God? Well, I'm going to make a theological pronouncement. God is the creator. The beast isn't the creator. The false prophet isn't the creator. The Antichrist isn't the creator. God is the creator. But then that theological pronouncement is going to be followed by an existential affirmation. If you want to, if you're still asking yourself, my dear Adventist friend, what group am I in? Simply look at your life and, and see the question, are you creating or are you destroying? Yeah. If you're creating, then you're where you need to be. If you're destroying, then the invitation is for you to cease and do what you were made for, which is creativity. Yeah. Uh, it's it's no mistake then that John says that the ones that are left out are the destroyers of the earth. And we, I mean, I, I love eco-theologians that talk a lot about how this is uh, calling us to be responsible and to have good stewardship of the world. And that is definitely part and parcel of which I'm a saint, but it's deeper than that. Yeah, It's art, is your life, is your existence predicated on creation or destruction. If you're destroying your relationships, if you're destroying the lives, if you're destroying yourself, you're in the wrong camp and you need to course correct. Wow, that is so powerful. I love that. That 
that he states who God is and then the implications of who God is to us. If God is the creator, then we, if we follow God, should also be creators, not destroyers. And that is a very simple yet frighteningly revealing way to examine our lives is the effect of my life, the way that I treat my family, the way that I interact with my friends, the way that I am at work. Am I creating or am I destroying? Wow. And I think, isn't that the piece, I think, that we haven't, or the the goldmine that we haven't dug into as Adventists? Mm. Not the epistemological or the knowledge approach to it, not the eschatological or the end times approach to it, but the practical the practical and the practically theological and ethical implications of the book. You can figure out when, I mean, you can try, I should say. Uh, you can try to figure out when Jesus is come. You can learn all the signs. You can be great at predicting. You can probably come up to me with a fantastic chart telling me why we need to start counting the 2300 days uh, from the edict to that uh, Artaxerxes um, it made to rebuild Jerusalem. Great. That's not what Revelation cares about. Revelation is asking the question, show me your life. Are you a creator or are you a destroyer? And those ethical implications of following the creative God, the God who creates and who makes something, I think need to be explored more in Adventism if Adventism is invested and interested in being relevant in the discourse of ideas today. Because very few people, maybe there's some out there, but very few people are going to be awed and moved by your dexterity with explaining why uh, at the middle, uh, why the 70 weeks begin um, and at the middle of the week, the Messiah is taken out. Very few people are going to be moved by that dexterity. But what they will be moved by is what that crucified and resurrected Jesus is doing in your life. And that has to do with what your life is creating uh, rather than what your life is destroying. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the greatest evidence for God is a sanctified life, mm -hmm. right? Is someone that who is following God um, and bringing glory to Him, and just to bring it full circle, this is not just the the priority of John in Revelation. This is the priority of all of Scripture, right? All of Scripture is asking the question: Who do you worship? Who will you worship? Who do you give glory to? And at the heart of being of giving glory is like you talked about is creating partnering with the creator to create good things in this world, in our relationships, in the ways that we love each other and the ways that we love God. At the heart of that is creation. And we are invited to be a part of that special work. Yeah. we So we are invited to create. And I think that's, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to move from the theoretical, particularly for us Adventists, from the ideological to the practical. But we can do it. I think we can do it. I think the challenge, though, and the deeper challenge, and I, to be honest, I, I spent the past week wrestling a lot with this. I think the deeper challenge isn't just how am I creating? I think the deeper challenge is how am I viewing other people, other faith traditions, other individuals, 
people with whom I disagree, am I able to recognize glimpses of creativity mm. and part and as you're saying, partnership with the divine in their lives? Mm. So it's not just about my creating. No. It's about my capacity to recognize that God is doing something or creating something in the midst of communities with whom I might disagree and with whom I might have uh, a lot of differences, both uh, intellectually and ideologically and so forth. Am I gracious enough to recognize God's creative power in those communities? And if I am, then the, the opportunities for partnership are, are incredible. They're exponential. I love that because you're talking about how creation, just creating itself is not, at, is not necessarily glorifying mm -hmm. God. It's creating in line with how God is already creating in the world. So we recognize that God is already doing something. We need to figure out what God is doing so that we can come alongside him. Um, I watched a documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a very, I mean, it was a mind-blowing yes. documentary. But I, what I loved about it is the, the, these people who were not farmers, they really didn't have any background in agriculture. They decided to start a farm, but start a farm that was um, working with nature rather than working against nature. Because a lot of our mega farms, the way that we do farming here in the United States is that we, we do monocultural farms. We just eradicate everything that's growing in that place and instead replace it with one crop, right? And they said, what if we created a farm that instead worked with nature and allowed nature to have a cohesive ecosystem? I don't know if they're Christian or not, but that works alongside with the way that God designed the world to work, right? And what they found is that the biggest part of doing that was taking the time to listen and observe, right? When they had an infestation of snails in there, in their crops, it wasn't to immediately come and just bomb the whole place with pesticides to eradicate. They wanted to know, well, what role do the snails play in, the, in, in, in this ecosystem? Yeah. And what they found was, well, snails, the reason why the snails are are growing so much is because they don't, they are, they're also meant to be food for the ducks. And so by allowing the ducks to now roam free, it, it controlled the snail population, but it allowed the snails to also c continue their role in the ecosystem without running wild. Mm -hmm. And it's just that idea that we can come alongside, you know, they're talking about an ecosystem, but also listening to God and understanding that there is work happening here. And so the, the, the thing that after watching that, that documentary, um, the question that I would always have is, what are the snails in this mm -hmm this, what are the pests, what do I see as a pest that is not necessarily a pest, but a work that God is doing that I don't understand yeah. yet. Yeah. And that's what I love about what you said. Even with people we disagree with, we may see them as pests, but they also have a work to, a role to play in this whole ecosystem of our lives. And we just need to be able to listen and see what God is doing in their lives and come alongside it. And when you do that, you realize, as you said, and I love that documentary, by the way, it was just, I wanted to go and plant stuff <laughs> because it really is easier than you thought it was <laughs> if you just listen. Um, so 
what I love about that is that there are tasks for which I probably am not the most adequate that are being fulfilled in other places. And so it takes away the spirit of competition mm. um, and it forces us to say, okay, where am I? Instead of looking at people as, uh, as competitors, mm. and in that sense, I think Adventism often has become really Darwinian, right? We look at other denominations wow. as our competitors. Yeah. But what you're suggesting is, well, what if we took a less Darwinian approach to religion? We took a more God, a theocentric approach to religion, which is saying, if God really created everything, then God is at work somehow, mm -hmm. some way. And so instead of saying, how are we different? The question we ask is, where is God at work here? Mm -hmm. um, this past week, uh, at the beginning of last week, we have, as you know, Joey, uh, several uh, were part of the a bioethics consortium uh, for Adventists, uh, Adventists, in, Adventists in bioethics. And so some great presentations. I think the thing that I took away from the most was in this particularly polarized time, the question that uh, thought leaders were asking time and time again is, is there any hope? Is there any hope amidst the division and the discourse and just the violence? Is there any hope? And time and time again, uh, each presenter said, yes, there is hope, but there's not hope in these mega structures mm -hmm. or in this in these systemic structures. They're, the, they're seeing hope in the in the smallest little farm, as it as it were. So in the communities, in the communities like in South Side of Chicago, where people started leaving gloves and scarves out on their on their driveway, simply saying, Hey, if you need this, take this. Mm -hmm. Um in uh, in the South, in one of the most divided uh, places of all, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where people started creating neighborhood community food banks for people that need, not asking, what are we different, but asking, hey, is it possible for God to be at work here? And I think if we're less Darwinian and more theocentric, mm. we'll start seeing God creating in communities that look vastly different than ours. And it gives us hope that even little changes that we make in our small corner of the universe, small corner of the world, can still have a powerful impact as long as we're working alongside mm -hmm. God. Amen, Joey. Well, I think we're out of time, so if you want to pray, and then we'll see our friends next week. Our good and gracious God, it's incredible that you trust us enough in order to invite us to work alongside you. And yet that's what you've done when you created humanity and you invited us to work alongside you and we made a terrible mess of things. And yet you try and try again to give us those opportunities to be creators and not destroyers. Lord, help us to be with you, to listen to you, to see how you're working in this world and then come alongside in that creative work is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So may you go and may you create well. And as you create well, may you catch glimpses of God in, un in unexpected places. This is our prayer for you. Until next time. Mm -hmm.